Hi everyone, it's Catherine here. I hope that as you tune into this, that you and your families are well and safe. We are in the middle of a challenging and uncertain time. And I never in my wildest dreams thought that these would be the circumstances under which I'd be releasing this second series of Mending the Gap. However, we have three really fabulous interviews already recorded, and I hope that they can provide a space to learn about and engage with something new and interesting in a time that's otherwise perhaps leaving us feeling quite flat, for me at least. It may be that later in the series we can talk to some researchers who are working on topics related to COVID-19, but for these first few episodes we're steering well clear of that topic. Again, I hope you and your loved ones are well and staying safe, and I really thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Mending the Gap, your guide to women's mental health research. My name is Catherine Saunders and I will be your host. I'm a third year PhD student at the section of women's mental health at King's College London. In each episode, I'll be sitting down with the researchers themselves who are working to mend the gender gap in mental health research. In this episode, I'll be talking to clinical psychologist Dr Jill Dominey, who introduces us to fathers and their mental health during the perinatal period. We also discuss her use of the Delphi technique to develop novel interventions in this area and the benefits of the whole family approach. So hi Jill, thanks so much for sitting down with me today. It'd be really great if you could tell me a little bit about your background, your clinical and academic journey that's really got you interested in the work that you're doing now. So I first got interested in this field back in 2010 when I got a research assistant position at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford working with Professor Paul Ramchandani. So anybody that knows anything about the field of uh, father's mental health will recognise that name Um, because Paul Ramchandani has really been instrumental in the UK in bringing father's mental health to the fore and really demonstrating some of the impacts that fathers have on their children. So it was a great position for me to have. And at that time, I was working on a research project called the Oxford Fathers Study. So that was looking at fathers over time, over the first two years of their children's life, and looking at the associations between fathers' mental health and child outcomes. So that got me really interested in that area. It was a very novel study. People were really interested in the findings. And Paul was also a really good mentor for working in this field. So I then went on to do my clinical psychology training, where, of course, I got the opportunity to learn a lot more detail about mental health and mental health interventions. And I specialised in perinatal and infant mental health. So perinatal mental health means mental health between the time of pregnancy and up to a year postnatally. So then after that, I got a job working in perinatal mental health services, which are essentially services for women during pregnancy and after the birth. But what I found was that lots of women were talking about their relationships with their partners, that difficulties in those relationships were contributing to some of their mental health difficulties, 
And often they would also talk about uh, noticing that their partners were struggling and had quite low mood. And we don't really have many services for fathers and partners. So that really maintained my interest in this area and realising that we don't have a lot of interventions and we don't have a lot of services that are there to support fathers. So when I had the opportunity to do a PhD here at King's College, that seemed like the perfect area to do it in to try and develop this field a little bit further. So it sounds like your research experiences then kind of fed into your clinical work and then your clinical work fed back into your research. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a nice combination because it means that I have that experience of working on the ground and knowing what comes up and what's challenging for people. But also now that research background to think about what are the important research questions um, and how we can we develop good quality interventions to put into those services. So we're going to talk about father's mental health in the perinatal period. Are the difficulties that men face the same as for women? So some are the same and some are a bit different. So of course both parents, especially with their first time parents, are struggling with this new role where there's lots of responsibility, often quite a lot of stress and a lack of sleep. New parents, of course, have lots of uncertainty and worry about the health of the baby and whether they're going to get it right and be good enough parents. And also, again, particularly for first-time parents, there's this challenge of going from being two, being a couple with a romantic relationship, to being three, where lots of the attention is on the baby and the relationship is often more about parenting. So that's really hard for both parents. And lots of those stresses and difficulties can contribute to poor mental health. But there are also some differences for men. So one key difference is having this work-life balance. So men often have to go back to work very soon after having a baby, which is really hard because you're trying to juggle that responsibility with work and being the breadwinner. Sometimes men are the sole earner, which is a lot of responsibility again. But also then trying to come home and be a father and be a partner and juggle both those things. And some men feel quite excluded as well across that uh, transition to parenthood. So particularly in maternity services, of course, the focus is on women. Men might feel like they're not sure what their role is or how to contribute. And similarly, after the birth, they might feel like the bond between the mother and the baby is really strengthening and good. And they might struggle to build that relationship with the baby, um, which can be quite distressing. I think the other thing for men as well is that they often don't have um, as much information or knowledge about infant development and so on, whereas women might get given that information by friends, family, health professionals. Men tend to feel there's a lack of that information that's specific to them. And that also links in a bit with some of the masculine stereotypes that might be around, which are quite challenging as well. So feeling like they have to be really strong and capable and able to cope, be the provider. And there's also this discrepancy, I think, from a generation or a couple of generations ago, there wasn't an expectation that men would be very involved in their baby's lives. So men now, where there is more of an expectation that they'll be involved, might find they don't really have a role model, they don't quite know what that looks like, and yet they're trying to be strong and capable and provide and be there for their partner and might be struggling struggling with lots of worries of their own. And what we also find is that Men might express distress in quite different ways to women, particularly around depression. So men might be more likely to get irritable or quite angry, sometimes even be quite aggressive. 
Um, or they may withdraw a lot. So that might look like working longer hours or staying away from the home if they're feeling quite low. Or it might even include using substances like alcohol or drugs to try and sort of avoid numb emotions. So that can look quite different to some of the symptoms we might look for in women. And maybe the other important point, just to think about the differences between men and women in the perinatal period, is the impact on children. So we know that both men and women, when they have mental health difficulties in the perinatal period, that can have negative impacts on their children. For women, those impacts tend to be quite direct. So it goes from the women's interactions and the way that the women are behaving with their children that might potentially um, impact on some of those child outcomes. Whereas for men, what we see is what we call direct impact. So that is similarly the way that men interact with their babies and their children, where if they've got mental health difficulties, um, their interactions might be a bit withdrawn or a bit disengaged. But what we also see is that an indirect pathway goes from fathers to their children through mothers. So that means that men's mental health might have an impact on their female partner and then the female partner might find parenting more difficult. And that's important because, of course, our podcast here is about women's mental health. But I suppose the point to take away is that when we're working with women in services and we're thinking about trying to improve their well-being and their recovery and also improving outcomes for children, we can't ignore the impact of their partners because that's going to be affecting their own recovery and well-being. And of course, the emotional environment in the home is a really important place where women are going to be hopefully recovering um, and overcoming from those mental health symptoms. That was a really brilliant overview. Thank you for that. I suppose thinking about this whole family approach, looking at women's mental health, but also father's mental health in in the perinatal period, do clinical services in this country, in the UK, currently include fathers in their approach to perinatal services? Not really. So for women, we've got quite good systems now for identifying mental health difficulties and also responding to mental health difficulties. So, for example, when women go to their midwife appointments, they'll be asked about their mental health. And if they disclose that they're struggling or having some challenges, we've got different systems in place where they can be referred to. So that might be primary care mental health services, which are general mental health services for anxiety and depression. Or they might, if they've got more severe difficulties get referred to specialist perinatal mental health services. So those are services particularly designed for women during pregnancy or in the first year after having a baby where they've got moderate to severe mental health difficulties. So that's a really good system and actually that's um, an incredible system that we have in England which many other countries in the world don't have. But at the moment, we don't have the same things for men. So there isn't a system in place for identifying mental health problems in men in the perinatal period. And if they are identified, they could be referred to the general primary care mental health services, um, but they can't be referred to specialist perinatal mental health services. And in fact, again, here in England, some of those things might change quite soon. The NHS uh, recently published their long-term plan, which included a statement that men would be able to have mental health checks if their partners were suffering from mental health 
difficulties. So that means that there are a group of men who will be able to have their mental health needs identified and be able to gain some support. But there's lots of work to do in that area. There are some definite gaps, but also the opportunities for progress within our NHS and perinatal services. Maybe it's possible that these gaps in services are due to a lack of evidence or research in this area. Could you say a little bit about what your research is addressing and how you're going about doing it? Yes, so we've got quite a lot of good research evidence at the moment showing these associations between father's mental health and father's behaviour and their child outcomes. So lots of that goes back to what I was mentioning at the beginning, Paul Ramachandani's research, but also lots of other data actually. And we also have quite a lot of research evidence uh, from interviews with men asking them about the transition to parenthood where they've highlighted some of these struggles and challenges. But what we don't really have at the moment is good evidence about the kind of interventions that would be effective for men, what they might need to support that transition to parenthood. And that's important for a couple of reasons. We know that men generally, but specifically in the perinatal period, are not very good at help seeking. So they might not identify that they've got a mental health need, but they might also be quite reluctant to go to their GP or to somebody else, sometimes because of those masculine stereotypes about needing to cope, but also because they often want to be there for their partners and babies and put their partner and baby's health and mental health first. So perhaps don't see themselves as legitimate users of health services at that time. So they might not seek help. And then when they do, what men tend to say um, in interviews is that they want something that's quite specific to their needs, quite specific to becoming a father and to the changing relationships. So, for example, if they go to a general mental health service with depression, they might have an intervention, something like cognitive behaviour therapy for depression. But that might not really be very adapted for the specific needs that they're having in this transition to parenthood. So we've got some evidence that we don't quite have interventions yet that are right for this population, but we don't yet uh, know quite what would be uh, the best kind of intervention or how effective that would be. So that's one of the gaps that my research is trying to address. So my PhD is based around trying to develop an intervention specifically for fathers in the perinatal period with mild to moderate symptoms of depression and anxiety. So to do that, I'm trying to bring different sources of evidence together. So that's including a literature review of what studies are currently out there about interventions. That's also uh, doing interviews with men about what challenges they face in the transition to parenthood. And I'm also doing something called a Delphi study, which is a way to get some expert opinions about what should be in an intervention and what the key components of that should be. So the hope is that bringing those different sources of evidence together, I'll have a good idea of what an intervention should look like and be able to develop an intervention manual, which can then go on to be tested for effectiveness. One of the research methods that you just mentioned is called the Delphi technique, is that right? Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, so the Delphi technique is a method that uses rounds of discussion in which experts are invited to give their opinions on a particular topic. And the aim is to try and generate consensus or agreement amongst the experts about the particular topic. 
And that's based on the idea that the opinions of many will outweigh the opinions of individuals and that any consensus or agreement reached will be a, a valid expert opinion. So this technique was first developed back in the 1950s, but it's been used quite a lot in healthcare research for things like generating new guidelines um, and also for developing the key components of interventions, which is what my study will be doing. So in a Delphi study, you usually start with quite open-ended questions, asking people generally for their thoughts and ideas about a particular topic. That's the first round. And then in subsequent rounds, you collate that information together, perhaps into statements that people can agree or disagree with or rate their agreement. So it's quite a nice method in that you have both a qualitative component where you're generating open-ended ideas and then this quantitative component where you're asking people to rate their agreement. So you've got this statistical aggregation at the end where you can show what the key components of an intervention should be. And it sounds like it's quite iterative in that the first part kind of feeds into the second part and you can revisit things. And Exactly, yeah. So in the second or third rounds, depending on how many rounds you have, experts can see what other people said. So it might be something they hadn't thought of but think is a really good idea. So they can then agree with those statements. Or equally, they might really disagree with something that somebody else said. So you can start to see where those differences of opinion are as well. And what are the benefits of this method of research, perhaps compared to other methods? So it's got a few advantages. So one is that you can cover a really wide geographical area, particularly nowadays that we have online surveys that we can use. Uh, so my study is an international Delphi study. So I'm asking for expert opinion from around the globe. So I've got people from Australia, Canada, the United States and other countries in Europe also contributing their expert opinions to this area, which is really useful. It also brings a really wide range of expert opinion to the decision-making process, so try to reduce bias in that way. And also the way that it's set up, particularly using online surveys, means it's anonymous, so that people can be free to give their opinions, even if they might be opinions that they might not want to give in a group setting. And that's particularly useful if you're targeting people that might have lived experience of the difficulty that you're investigating, who may not feel comfortable disclosing certain things in an open discussion, but privately might do. And also, as I mentioned before, it's this mixed methods approach. So you get both the qualitative element and the quantitative element um, to really get good sources of data about the topic that you're studying. It sounds like it covers an awful lot of bases in just one technique, which is a, a huge benefit. But I can imagine that there are difficulties in conducting this type of research as well. Could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so there's probably two main difficulties. So one is around who you can get to sign up to your study, which I guess is a common research difficulty around recruitment. But ideally, you want to have a wide range of opinions at the beginning. And particularly if you're asking professionals and academics and so on, people may or may not have time to take part in your study. And because you're doing several rounds, it might take several months to do your study. And in between the rounds, you're having to analyze the data and put it back out. So you might get some attrition as well, which means that people who start the study maybe don't end up um, responding to subsequent rounds. So that can be a problem. 
But the other key thing, of course, is that you might not reach agreement. It might be that you're studying a topic where there's quite a lot of differences of opinion or quite a lot of controversy. And as a researcher at the end, you might not gain consensus. And so then you'd have to make a decision about what you're going to do with that data and how you're going to manage those disagreements. Could it be possible that, in a way finding disagreements is actually informative in itself that perhaps there are two schools of thought about a certain topic. It sounds like there's potentially something maybe research generating in that. Yeah, so that would be, as you said, an interesting finding in itself if there really are two different schools of thought about a topic that you're researching. So that could still be an interesting output from the study as well. And depending on what you're hoping to do with the data, you may be able to use that in a, in a helpful way. What are the implications or potential uses of the data from your study? So, as I mentioned, we've got quite a lot of data showing that there are these associations between fathers' mental health and and poor outcomes for the family. So we know we need interventions. And we've also got some qualitative data from interviews with men saying what some of the challenges are and and also saying a little bit about what they think might be helpful for them. Um, But there's still a bit of a gap in terms of knowing, like, what would that actually look like in terms of intervention? So my study is surveying mostly health professionals, but also academics who are working with men in the perinatal period, particularly with men with mental health difficulties. So they have met lots of different men who might be presenting with different kinds of challenges. They are mostly aware of the kinds of interventions that already exist. And they're also aware of the way that services are run and the potential way that services could be shifted or changed to include an intervention. So there's a lot of knowledge and expertise there. So the aim really is to draw together that expertise from people who are used to working in this area to try and be a bit more specific about what an intervention might look like. So some of the questions that I'm asking are um, things around the typical areas of distress for men in the perinatal period, some of the key beliefs that men might have that might be problematic and might be exacerbating depression, some of the behaviours that men might engage in that might not be very helpful or might make things worse, and also thinking about what some of the mechanisms for change might be. So that means what might some of the factors be that help men to challenge some of their beliefs, to behave in ways that are more helpful, um, and to overcome some of those symptoms of depression. And there's also some questions around what the the format or the mode of delivery might be for that intervention. Because as I mentioned before, men tend not to help seek much around this time. And they might be quite reluctant, for example, to go and have a one hour a week session, which we might typically think of as a therapeutic intervention. So it's really useful to get that wide array of opinions about what's going to be the most helpful kind of content and format. And then I can use that evidence along with evidence from literature reviews and from men themselves to put together an intervention manual. It sounds like the things that you're doing, the studies that you're doing, they really complement each other. They seem to be working together to a common goal. Yes, that's the idea. I think it's really useful to converge these different sources of data when you're trying to do something quite novel and quite new. 
to get, as I said, both the opinions of experts and professionals, the opinions of men themselves um, who've been through some of these challenges and who've got lived experience, and also the wider literature, finding out studies that have already been done, what's worked, what hasn't worked, and trying to really draw all those sources together to make something that hopefully will be both feasible to deliver and also acceptable to the population that we're targeting. So I suppose that answers the question of what comes next. A lot of collating of information to create something at the end that is actually useful. Yeah, so that will be my next stage, actually putting together the intervention manual. And then going on from that, the next stage would be to do a pilot of that intervention. And that pilot would be answering several different questions. So it would be looking at, is this feasible to implement into services, thinking about who would deliver this intervention, which professionals would need to be involved, um, who's going to be referring men to the intervention, but also looking at, is this something that men find acceptable? Um, Can we recruit them into the intervention? Do they engage with it? Do they get to the end of it? So those questions all would need to be answered before we can really think about answering questions around effectiveness and whether this actually changes symptoms of depression. So a pilot is is basically just a small version of the real thing to check that it's something that people would want to do and would be able to do. Exactly. And that's a really, really important phase of intervention development to have that pilot phase, just to test out all those different pathways and recruitment methods. Because otherwise, if you go to a full trial and spend lots of money and time and resources and find that no man signs up to this because it's not quite right for him and he doesn't really like the content, that's going to be a waste of lots of resources. So the pilot phase is really important and often you make lots of changes that phase as well to make sure that it's sitting in the right place in clinical services, um, that it's likely to be something that men will be able to engage with so that you can then go on to test those questions around effectiveness. Why is it so important to continue researching this area? There's these very well established now associations between paternal mental health and child outcomes and that I think really needs to be reiterated because we we know that there's these associations between women's mental health and child outcomes But actually what we find is that the associations for men are similar and and quite strong. So we really need to be thinking more about the whole family if our aim is to improve outcomes for children and for the next generation. But also the other two people that I want to think about in this, I've talked a lot about the child outcomes. We also need to be doing this just to improve men's mental health. Suicide rates for men are about three times what they are for women. Men's mental health is a growing area, if you like, as people are slowly understanding the impact that that has on men themselves and their families. So we really need to be thinking about improving the well-being of men more generally. But also, I also mentioned earlier this idea about the impact that men's mental health has on their female partners and where we are developing services for women, where we are able to deliver therapeutic interventions, for example, therapy, Um, if those women are 
successfully going along to interventions and having therapy and taking on those messages, if they're then going back into homes where the emotional environment is not good, where they've got communication difficulties with their partners, where their partners are low um, or struggling with their own mental health difficulties, it's going to make it particularly difficult for women to overcome their challenges and recover from mental health problems. So this is really a, an argument, I think, for starting to develop this whole family way of thinking about mental health, really understanding the impacts that different members of the family have on each other, on their well-being and recovery, and making sure that where we're intervening with any member of the family, we're also holding in mind their partners, their children and other people who are impacting on them. And that approach uh, is often called the perinatal frame of mind, where you're able to hold in mind different members of the family, whoever you're working with, consider their needs as well, and make sure that you're putting support in place to improve relationships as well as individuals' mental health. I wanted to ask if, if someone was listening and was really interested in what we've been talking about, what resources would you recommend that they have a look at to learn a little bit more? So uh, there's a particular book that would be really useful, I think, called Daddy Blues, Postnatal Depression and Fatherhood. So that came out last year. It's written by a man called Mark Williams. So again, anybody that's interested in the field of father's mental health will have heard of Mark. Mark has been a campaigner and trainer around father's mental health for many years now. He's a huge advocate for this area. Um, he founded International Father's Mental Health Day, which happens every year in June, um, and has really helped to spread the word about the need for people to think about father's mental health and for us to change the way that services work. So that book um, is a really good foundation for understanding mental health at this time and fathers and the sorts of challenges that men might have. So I definitely recommend that to anyone who's interested. Um, the other places which are more generally around men's mental health, but that also touch on fathers within that, is the Movember website. So hopefully lots of people will have heard of Movember. Um, if you go onto the UK website, they've got some really interesting resources and blogs around uh, men's mental health and some around father's mental health in particular. Uh, so that's probably the best place to start if you're interested. Jill, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. You're welcome. So there we have it, a really fascinating discussion on the mental health of fathers during the perinatal period. Thank you again to Jill for joining me and discussing her exciting research questions and methods. Please do rate and review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter, our handle is at mendthegappod and join the conversation using hashtag mendingthegap. We'll be back with a brand new episode very soon. Thank you for listening.